to be able to worship and assemble with the saints. We thank you, God, for how good that you've been to each and every one of us. We thank you for leaving us the local church where we can come to band together for the purpose of the gospel, the Great Commission, to worship you, to hear the preaching of the word of God, and to bear one another's burdens. I pray that you would be with every need that is in the room this morning, Lord. Uh, if there's heavy hearts, if there's prayer requests, if there's struggles, Lord, if there's joys, whatever it is, you know what it is. So I pray that you would share in that with us this morning, that you would help us to be a church family. I pray that you would help me as we look to the word of God this morning, that you would help me to the best of my ability to say, thus saith the Lord, to preach the truth and to define it biblically and to do so in a way that is loving as well. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as you can see up on the screen, these are the topics that we're going to be covering this morning. And a spoiler alert, if you know anything about me and my preaching or about our ministry at all, you know that we very strongly stand upon the position that whosoever will may come, that the gospel has gone out into all the earth and that the Lord will provide what is necessary for salvation. But ultimately, each and every human being is going to have to choose whether they will receive the gospel or whether they will reject it. With that being said, I know that different people take a lot of different approaches, and all I can do is try to say this is where God's put me at, and I try to follow the Lord and His will. So my approach is, if there is someone who is Calvinistic in their doctrine, but they are doing their best to serve the Lord and to preach the Bible, and as many of them do, even give the gospel, I look at them as a brother or sister in Christ who, with whom I have clear disagreement with, but I know that I disagree with them. I know what I disagree with and why. There are teachers and preachers who are Calvinistic in their doctrine that in some certain areas have very faithfully striven to preach the word or to write about truths of the Bible. So I may even come to some of what they have presented, but say, I know that I disagree with them. I know why, but in this area, they've labored very hard to define the scripture and to teach the truth. So I can still look at some of their writings. Some people would take the position of if there's anything they're wrong about or in that area, don't listen to them at all. And again, I would simply say, I just try to follow the Lord according to what I believe he would have me to do. And sadly, there's people who are not Calvinistic in their doctrine who sometimes have not labored very hard to actually exegete and exposit the scripture. And that can be an area that is lacking sometimes. Pastor Clarence Sexton from Tennessee said that many different people who follow Calvinistic doctrine are actually still very evangelistic in the way that they approach things. He said that he was a visitor at a church one time that believed Calvinist doctrine. And he said, before I could even get out of the restroom, they came up to me and tried to see was I saved and to give me the gospel. He said, and I think we should do that. Now, we probably should wait till they come out of the restroom to approach them. But praise the Lord that however, if somebody defines their theology upon these doctrines differently. If they are telling the news that Jesus died for your sins, you need to receive him as savior in order to be saved. I'm going to praise the Lord for that. Even if I know that there are clear differences there between me and them. And even though I may not invite them to preach in our church or associate with them in that type of a way, I think we all can still strive to love each other, even if we have differences. And I would say nobody in this church has to agree with everything I say about this topic over the next couple of weeks in order to be here. I think there would be a difference between somebody being antagonistic towards the doctrines and stands of a church where they find a couple things where they're different from than the church 
church they attend and then they try to approach everybody after the service and give them a bunch of literature that tries to prove what the church's teaching is wrong, that would be different than simply following the Lord with the local church trying to serve Him there, even though there are differences in what may be said and in what you believe. Because we're certainly not going to agree with each other on every single thing, no matter what happens. So while I say those things about you're welcome here if I dis- if you disagree with some of these things, and while I love other Christians who may take a different position, I do want this morning to be very clear on where we stand and on what we teach. If you remember Pastor Johnson who preached for us back in February, my wife and I went to visit a little church in the country on a Wednesday night or maybe a Sunday night for the first time that was near our home in Howe when we lived up north. And Pastor Johnson, we were talking about the church and different things we believed. And he said, we're not Calvinist, not even a little bit. Okay, so that's pretty much where we are. The definition of God's nature and character is at stake based off of how we describe the truths of salvation and how God is active in that role. Now, it can end up making very little practical difference in how you live your life day to day if you take a strong stand on the practice of evangelism and wanting to tell everybody about Christ. These different doctrines and how you disagree with it can end up having a pretty negligible difference on how you're living out your life day to day. Yet it does matter because the definition of the nature of God and the character of God and the doctrine of soteriology, which is what we'll be looking at this morning, meaning the study of the doctrine of salvation, is pretty important. And it's pretty important that we define what the Bible has to say about it. All right? So here we go. That is a picture of John Calvin. John Calvin was a French lawyer, theologian, and ecclesiastical statesman who lived in the 1500s. He was the most important figure in the second generation of the Protestant Reformation. In the 1520s, he studied at the University of Paris. John Calvin wrote his beliefs in Switzerland, where he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion only one year after his conversion. He later moved to Germany and then to Geneva, where he served as pastor and head of the Genevan Academy and wrote the sermons, biblical commentaries, and letters that formed the basis of Calvinism. Now, as you read about it, Calvin did not write the five points of Calvinism, but the five points were taken from all of his doctrines, and later, after he had died, when people like Joseph or uh, Jacobius Arminius, who began to write against his doctrine and say, here's where Calvin had it wrong. The people who liked the teachings of Calvin began to rally around and write, and they came up with the five points of Calvinism. I tried to research this week where it first originated and cannot find an answer, but if you hear someone use the phrase, the doctrines of grace, that will be another name for the five points of Calvinism that come from the TULIP acronym. The phrase, doctrines of grace, one source said, is often associated with Jonathan Edwards. It is used to describe the five major theological headings, also known as the five points of Calvinism. My guess is they wanted to name that sounded a little bit better and that tried to kind of soften the blow by calling them the doctrines of grace. So that's why they came up with it. So what are the five points of Calvinism? If someone says they affirm all five points of Calvinism or the five doctrines of grace, to what did they refer? Under the acronym TULIP, we find the different headings for what it stands for. Under the letter T, it stands for total depravity. 
Now, I would be able to have a discussion about using the phrase about man, that man is totally depraved, if the definition was applied correctly, meaning that we cannot earn our way to heaven. We don't have goodness or righteousness in the eyes of God. And in our depraved state, we're capable of falling to any level of sin or apostasy. That I would agree with. But according to the doctrines of grace, or Calvinism, or tulip, by total depravity, they mean that man is so depraved in every essence of his nature that he has no ability to say yes to God when God prompts him to repent and to receive the gospel. So they mean by total depravity that you're so depraved that you don't have the ability to say yes to Jesus when the Holy Spirit pulls you in to the fact that Christ is the Son of God. That definition I would define as a false teaching. Under the letter U, we have unconditional election. This would mean that according to their definition, before time began, God looked forward in history and saw who he would want to save, and he saved them, selected them for salvation unconditionally, meaning having nothing to do with anything they have done, including them saying yes to the gospel. Okay? So it would mean God looked at all of mankind as totally depraved and unable to say yes to God or no to God, and God selected some to go to heaven and some not to go to heaven, but his selection was totally unconditionally based upon the behavior or response of the human being. I would define that as a false teaching because I believe that God does elect to save those who ultimately say yes to Jesus Christ. That mankind's response to the gospel is a factor, is the deciding factor at the end of the day as to whether or not the grace of God is applied. It's not a good work that we accomplish, but it is as simple as us saying yes or us saying no. So I believe that who God elects to go to heaven is a conditional election based upon your response to the gospel. Okay? Under the letter L. This one is somewhat controversial enough that I believe many four-point Calvinists will leave this one out. So again, if someone says, well, who are you? I'm a Baptist. And then they assume they know everything I believe, they're going to end up being wrong on a lot because Baptists are split all over the place on different definitions of doctrines and what they believe. But limited atonement means exactly what it says. According to that doctrine, they would teach that when Jesus died, he did not die to pay for the sins of every human being that has ever lived. He only died to pay for the sins of the elect. Therefore, the sins of those who do not come to Christ for salvation will remain unpaid for by the blood of Christ, and they will pay for it when they go to hell. This doctrine I would define as a false teaching as well because as we'll see in a moment, I believe the Bible teaches that Christ died for the sin of every single person that has ever lived. Thus, if you go to hell to pay for your own sin, that is on you. That's your choice because Christ paid the payment already, but he still ultimately wants to leave it up to you what you do with it or not. Under the letter I... I find this phrase comical sometimes. It stands for irresistible grace. It means that when you got saved, since you were fully incapable of saying yes or no to God, that God came to you, he put his grace upon you to call you for salvation in such a way that that grace was irresistible and you would have had no ability or opportunity to say no to Christ. In other words, irresistible grace is sort of like kidnapping grace, okay? You know, you're not able to say yes to the gospel, but you're not able to say no, so I irresistibly grace you and you're saved and you have nothing to do with it. 
I would define that as a false teaching also because I believe that the grace of God is effectual, but it also is resistible. Where at the end of the day, if you say, no, I do not want Christ, Christ will allow you to reject him. And then under the letter P, we have perseverance of the saints. And depending upon who you hear define it, the most accepted basic way that it could be described is basically once you are saved, you are always saved. If you persevere to the end of your life, still professing faith in Jesus Christ, it gives evidence that you were truly born again and that you have been kept saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They say perseverance of the saints because if you come to the place where you once professed Christ, but then you come to a point in time where you say, well, now Christ is not God. He's not my way of salvation. They'll say, well, you are not truly a saint. Therefore, you did not persevere in your testimony. So if you want to define that point as eternal security or once saved, always saved, then that doctrine we would affirm. We believe that eternal life is a present possession. And if you have been saved or are in Christ, you are not in danger of falling away because our faith is not dependent upon us or our works. And if we continue to profess Christ through the end, it gives evidence that he saved us and that our conversion was genuine. There's such a thing as a false profession of faith where someone will claim Christ, but then their life never shows any evidence that they actually believed or changed. And a false profession of faith does not save us. Okay. I know that I'm going fast, but if you simply say, Jesus, please save me but you didn't truly have an understanding of what the gospel was, of your sin, and of judgment that you were headed for, and of your need of salvation, and did not sincerely call upon the name of the Lord and repent, meaning to turn and accept Christ as your only payment for sin, it's not enough to get you to heaven for you to say a little prayer if you don't understand what's actually going on. So I would agree personally with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints because once we are saved, I believe if we are genuinely saved, we never fall away, but we have eternal security. All right? This guy's name was Jacobus Arminius. He was a Dutch Reformed minister and theologian during the Protestant Reformation period whose views became the basis of what is now known as Arminianism. He served from 1603 as professor in theology at the University of Leiden and wrote many books and treaties on theology. Following his death, his challenge to the reform standard, the Belgic Confession, provoked ample discussion at the Synod of Dort, which crafted the five points of Calvinism in response to Arminius's teaching. Okay, so Calvin defined these doctrines in all of his writings. And at what did that say? The Synod of Dort, they came up with five points to say, here's the five points of Calvinism, because Arminius had been writing as to why Calvin was wrong. I don't even know what I just said. So if you're following me, you're doing really good. Okay. <laughs> Considered a man of mild temperament, Arminius was forced into controversy against his own choice. He had earlier affirmed the Calvinist view of predestination, which held that those elected for salvation were so chosen prior to Adam's fall, but he gradually came to have doubts about this teaching. To him, predestination seemed too harsh a position because it did not provide a place for the exercise of human free will in the process of salvation. Hence, Arminius came to assert a conditional election according to which God elects to eternal life those who will respond in faith 
to the divine offer of salvation. In so doing, he meant to place greater emphasis on God's mercy. So then, there are five points of Arminianism as well. Number one is free will. This states that though man is fallen, he is not incapacitated by the sinful nature and can freely choose God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. He still has the ability to say yes to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit draws him. I would affirm that as true. The next one is conditional election, meaning God chose people for salvation based on his foreknowledge, where God looks into the future to see who would respond to the gospel message. This I would affirm as true as well. If God selected you to go to heaven, it's based in some part upon the condition that you agree to it. And that's simply what that means. The next one, number three, is universal atonement. This is the position that Jesus bore the sin of everyone who ever lived when he died on the cross. This we would affirm as true as well. Then number four, we have resistible or obstructible grace. By this, the meaning is the teaching that the grace of God can be resisted and finally beaten so as to reject salvation in Christ. I affirm that as true as well. If you ultimately harden your heart and tell God enough times, I do not want you to save me, then God will give you over to your own way. And I don't believe he's going to kidnap you against your will and make you get saved. The door is open there for you to obstruct or to resist his grace. Now, under number five is falling from grace. The teaching that a person can fall from grace and lose his salvation. That doctrine I do not agree with. I believe in eternal security that once we are in Christ, we are secure with our possession of salvation. Now, my younger sister said to me one time, I bet what happened is that Arminius was so contrary to Calvin that when he got to the last point, he said, I'm not going to let him have that one either. So I'm just going to say he got everything wrong. Now, whether that factored in or not, you can see the definition side by side of the five points of what would be called Calvinism and the five points of what would be called Arminianism. Now, in my circle, I've heard people often say, I'm not a Calvinist or an Arminianist. I'm a Biblicist. And that, that, that's fine. I agree with that too. But it's still helpful to kind of define what the terms are. So technically, I would have to affirm one of the five points of Calvinism and four of the five points of Arminianism. But that would leave me short of claiming either one of these systems of theology as what I would define myself as. All right. So with the time that we have remaining this morning, we're going to start out on a 10 point outline that is going to be giving the affirmative of how I believe the Bible defines defines soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Now, my approach to this is going to be different than if I was doing a three-hour debate with someone who held to all five points of either one of these doctrines. I'm not going to address every single verse in the entire Bible that might play into it looking like there's election or do we have free will. But what I'm going to do is to give the affirmative for what we believe the doctrine of salvation is and ten different points that we believe scripturally to be true. All right? I think everybody's still here. Nobody left. So let's keep going. Number one, biblically, God wants everyone to be saved. This is a simple statement of the fact that scripture says that God wills or desires every single person who has ever lived to come to salvation 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his desire. That's what he wishes we would do with the free will that he has given us is he desires for us to repent and to take him up on the offer of salvation. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is willing, he is desirous that not one person who has ever lived would perish in the lake of fire, but he wills and desires that all would come to repentance. Every now and then there'll be a teacher or a group or a way of thinking or someone that will meet who when a wicked person dies, they will rejoice and say, I'm glad that person died and went to hell. They deserved it. But that's not the heart of God and it's not the heart of Christ. And if you understand what the Bible truly teaches, you'll know that we all deserve that and we're all wicked. So we should not rejoice when someone who is wicked dies without Christ. It should break our hearts to have us keep praying and giving the gospel to other people who are rejecting him that they might repent before it is too late. For that is the heart of God. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now those who follow the Calvinistic line of thinking will look at this verse. And again, you may find someone who will say, well, that's not describing what I believe in the right way. But I'm giving you the very, very simple, basic definitions that they themselves claim and that I have heard over and over again. They may not like the spin that we would put on it. They might like to spin it a different way. But very simply put, this verse says that God is willing that all men will be saved. And I'll tell you exactly what they do when they come to try and exegete this scripture. They'll say, well, that doesn't mean all men who ever lived. It means all types of men. So God looked at this nation and this nation and this nation and God said, I want some of them to get saved, but not the rest who live within that nation. Okay? And they'll use the verses that precede it where Paul says he exhorts them that prayers would be made for all men. Then the next verse says, for kings and for all that are in authority. And they say, see, well, God said, pray for all men. But then he specifically said kings. So that proves that when God says all, he doesn't actually mean all. He just means certain types that are mixed into all of the groups of all. But I think it's pretty easy to follow if, if we're not getting tripped up that Paul's saying, pray for all men. And then to a group of people who might have been antagonistic towards the kings and rulers who were persecuting them, he reminds them, hey... All includes the kings and those who are in authority. So you could tell your child, be nice to everyone and be nice to your brother, especially because you live with him. Okay, it's not negating the prior statement that everyone should be treated kindly and nicely. And so when God says he will have all men to be saved, it's a very basic statement. It's a very basic truth. There's no need to start reading other things into this text other than to affirm that God said He wills and is desirous that all men would be saved. That's why He offered it to all. Now, the Greek word there that is used for will means to choose or prefer by implication to wish. That is to be inclined to. It goes on to say to have, rather, to will. 159 times in the Bible it's translated will or would. So it says God wills. It means He's desirous that all men would be saved. The word that is used for all means every, the whole, always, anyone, everyone, as many as 
whatsoever, whole, whosoever. 748 times in the Bible it's translated as all. So the scripture very, very simply says, with nothing else changing the meaning, God is willing and desirous that all men would be saved and come to him. That's his heart. That's what he desires to have happen. Do the word study. Pull up the other 748 plus times that it's used in the Bible, and you will find that it means what it says it means. God is desirous and willing that all would be saved. Acts 17.30 At the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why is God commanding all men everywhere to repent? Because that's what He wants them to do. That's what He desires for them to do. If you go to your three-month-old baby in the crib and say, clean your room, it's ridiculous. It's not possible. You'd be commanding them to do something that they're not able to even do. So I simply believe that when God says He commands everyone to repent, it's because He actually desires them to obey His command and He knows that they are capable of completing a command. And that's the whole point. Isaiah 45, 22, this is the message of the whole Bible. Look to me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Isaiah 55, 1, ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters and he hath no money. Come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We know in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the living water and the invitation has always been given. All the ends of the earth, whoever wants to come, are you thirsty? Do you desire to know God? Do you want eternal life? Then come and get it. It's a free offer. Salvation was not free. It required Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins. It was the ultimate price. But yes, for you, it is free. Now that takes a lot of getting over pride. It takes a lot of being willing to admit, I am a sinner, I am guilty, I need the grace of God. And that doesn't always come easily. But it still does not change the truth that salvation is free. And it is a free offer to all. And it's a really good deal. And we'd be foolish to turn it down. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Again, I should be able to do it without saying it. But I looked really deeply into the word all, and it means all, okay? All men have received of the grace of God. Therefore, God can say that He is willing that all would come to repentance. Now, a common false charge that is brought against this doctrine is, well, if you're saying God wants everyone to get saved, and everyone's not saved, then you're saying God wanted to do something, but He failed. You're saying God wanted to save them, but they didn't get saved. That would mean that God is a failure and that God's not strong enough to save everyone. Or they would say, maybe you're teaching universalism. God wants all to be saved, so all ultimately will be saved. Here's what I believe the truth is, according to the Word of God. The truth is that God elected, which is a very simple word that means chose, okay? God chose to die for everyone, to offer them all the option to repent, allow them to choose yes or no, And He elected to save the ones who choose to repent and believe. This is what God elected to do, and He accomplished it perfectly. This is not universalism. This is not God trying to save everyone, but, oh, they're not good enough to help me save themselves, so I guess I failed. No, it's God setting into motion before the foundation of the world, the plan of salvation, that I will die for your sins, I will offer it to you as a free payment, but it will be up to you to choose to say yes or no. And if you choose to say yes, then I decide to save you. If you choose to say no, then I choose to give you over to the judgment that you have chosen. This is a very basic 
Bible truth. Number one is that God wants everyone to be saved. I made a cheat sheet so I can look back and remember the points as I go without digging through because otherwise I'm going to forget them. Number two, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Some scriptures here. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation means atonement, payment, turning away God's wrath, appeasement, and satisfaction for the judgment that is to come. And the Bible says that Christ is the payment for our sins, not just for ours, the church, but also for the sins of the whole world, all the world, all the people in the world, and all the sins that have been committed. Romans chapter 3, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If you've tried to follow any system of belief this morning that is trying to earn your way to heaven, may I tell you I'm sorry for whoever told you that's the way to go, because God says we are justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You cannot live good enough to go to heaven. You cannot do more good than bad in order to go to heaven. It's a good thing to go to church or to get baptized or to give money to the poor, but these things will not take you to heaven. It has to be freely received. The propitiation of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53, if you know your Bible, you know that this is one of the most famous chapters in all of the Old Testament that prophesies about Jesus Christ. Written seven centuries before Christ showed up on earth. It tells perfectly about His life and death and His atonement. And Philip was caught away into the wilderness to speak to an Ethiopian man who was on a chariot in the book of Acts. And he was reading from a scroll. And as Philip was sent to witness the gospel to him, he was reading from the scroll from Isaiah chapter 53 about Christ. And then God sent Philip along to explain what the scripture was saying. And speaking of Christ, Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Romans says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you claim to be without sin this morning, then you are a liar and the word of God is not in you according to 1 John. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all have sinned. And the iniquity of every single one of us was laid upon the back of Jesus Christ when he died for our sins. Thus his payment could be said to be sufficient for all sin everywhere, for all time, once Christ was sacrificed on the cross. Hebrew says the bulls of blood and of goats could never actually take away sin. So in the Old Testament, when they said, go to your flock, get a lamb and bring it up to the altar for it to be slaughtered and the blood to be sprinkled all around the mercy seat. And they would say, bring a lamb that is without spot or blemish. You can't bring one that you don't want. Don't bring one that is crippled. Don't bring one that is spotted or diseased. Bring the best and purest lamb you have. 
why that was a representation of Christ. And Hebrews says he was once offered for sins. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And when he paid for sins, he paid for all of them. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One more here. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. There's a lot of good commentaries and a lot of good textbooks and a lot of good people you can go ask questions to. But the Bible is a really good place to get your doctrine from. And God willing, that is what we're doing to the best of our ability. Now people will say, well, if you're saying Jesus died for the sins of the lost and they reject Him and they still go to hell, that would be double indemnity. That would be basically Jesus paying for their sin and them paying for their own sin. That wouldn't really be fair. Why would Jesus have to pay for their sin, but then they have to pay for it too? That's not just or fair. Let me ask you the question this morning, was anything about the cross just or fair? No, it was about mercy. And it was about grace. And it's a new level of mercy, grace, and love that the world has ever seen. Someone could say, well, what has God ever done for me? And though I could list a lot of things, I promise you He's done for you because you're here and breathing. My first response would be, He died for you. No one else has ever done that. He loved you and He loved you enough to say, I am going to die for you. I'm going to pay for your sins, whether you choose to accept it or not. But the offer's free and it's up to you. Number one, God wants everyone to be saved. Number two, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Number three, no one can be saved unless God draws them. Okay, let's look at two verses here and then I'll give you a little bit more definition of what I mean by this. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Now the word here for draw means literally to drag. In John chapter 21, the word is used for the disciples taking a net that is very heavy and full of fish, getting it up on the shore and dragging it across the shore to where Jesus was. So Jesus said no one can come to him for salvation except the Father himself is pulling them to Christ. John 6, 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now, what I mean by this statement that no one can be saved unless God draws them is I mean that salvation is not a human idea. Salvation is not a human endeavor. Salvation is not a human accomplishment whereby we earn it or whereby, whereby we will be able to come to God and say, I got myself to you. I got myself into heaven. You didn't have anything to do with it, but I just kind of decided I thought I wanted to get saved. But it means that God must supernaturally draw us to Himself in order for us to even be capable of responding to His calling and to His pulling. Very simply put, we love Him because He first loved us. 
If He had not loved you and made the means of His salvation available to you ahead of time, you would have had no ability to ever love Him. The love came from God. The offer came from God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receives, receiveth not the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus is speaking here about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, when I ascend to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's going to do. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So we cannot be saved unless God is working in our heart, drawing us, calling us to salvation, giving us the ability to believe and saying, you need to accept me. And isn't it a wonderful thing to know that if you or I try to share our faith or give the gospel to someone, the work is not wholly dependent upon how good we are at talking or even how much of the Bible we know. Now, I think we should try to get good at sharing our faith. I think we should try to know as much of the Bible as possible. But if all you know how to do is to tell someone that God loved the world enough to give Jesus to die for your sins, and if you will believe in Him and receive Him freely as the payment for your sins, you can go to heaven. Here's what happened to me when I got saved. That can happen to you too. It's a blessing to me to know that when I speak to someone about their soul, I'm not the only one there. Jesus said, I send you forth two by two. Go there into all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So when I am telling someone, you need to believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is pulling at their heart, drawing them to God and saying, this is the truth. You know it's the truth. Don't resist the truth. And there is certainly a supernatural work of God that is involved in the salvation process. And that is the Holy Spirit of God convicting the hearts of men and women of sin, righteousness, and judgment and pulling them to God for the offer of salvation. All right, I told you this is real simple. But I know it's complex, but it's actually very simple. Let me recap. Number one, God wants everyone to be saved. Number two, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Number three, no one can be saved unless God draws them. Number four, God draws all men. He calls all men to be saved. And He provides light to everyone. Simply put, I don't believe that God ever looked down and He said, well, here's a person that's living... But I'm not going to show them revelation or light or convict their heart about the truth. I'll just give them to their own way. You see, God gives mankind free will, but He also is a sovereign God that is fully involved in the affairs of men as well. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. John 1.9 It says, Jesus was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, I can't explain to you the way that it works in every single situation and case, but the Bible says that Jesus Christ is a light that gives light to every man that is born into the world. Thus, when you stand before God to be judged, you will never be able to say, God, you didn't reveal yourself to me. You didn't show me what the truth was. In some way or another, God will be able to say Jesus Christ Himself was giving you light because He loved you enough to give you light and give you truth that you needed to respond to. John 12, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. 
Now, sometimes this verse has been taken and used all by itself, which is usually a bad idea. And people will say, well, that's what our church wants to do. We want to lift up Jesus. We want to elevate Him and magnify Him. And if Jesus is lifted up, all men will be drawn to come watch. Now, I think we should lift up Christ in that sense, okay? But verse 33 tells what He meant. This He said, signifying what death He should die. You see, in that day and age, if you said the phrase, lift it up, they knew you were talking about crucifixion. So Jesus said, when I am crucified, what will I do? I will draw all men unto me. I have this in here to say at some point, and I know I'll end up repeating it, but I honestly believe that Calvinism is a basis of doctrine that has to be read into the text, not taken out of the text. In other words, we could say, well, what Jesus is really saying is that if I am crucified, I will draw all kinds of men and of all certain types, shapes, sizes, and colors, I will draw them unto me irresistibly and force them to get saved and they will have no option to be saved. But those who are not the elect, I will not draw at all nor give them any option because they're not capable of saying yes to me. It's not in there. You have to read it into it over and over and over again. Even the verses that are talking about predestination or being called, you'll never find a verse from which or a section of Scripture you can pull out what they would like to insert in it. I don't know where I am. Okay. So people live at different times in history. They have different levels of revelation. They live in a different culture. But God said very clearly, all will be given light and will be drawn to Him. Thus God will be able to justly hold everyone responsible when He judges them. Again, Acts 17.30, He commands all men everywhere to repent. A couple of sections here from Romans. Romans chapter 2 and 11. There is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. You want to be justified before God? Keep the law perfectly. Ha! The Bible's teaching works salvation. Is that true? No, he goes on to very clearly say no one who's ever lived can keep the law of God perfectly. That was the whole purpose of it. Was it taught you you are a sinner, you can't earn your way to God. For when the Gentiles, these would be lost people, the heathen nations, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What does verse 15 say? It says that people who have never heard the law of God proclaimed have the law written in their hearts and they don't have to be taught it's wrong to kill someone or to take your neighbor's wife or to abuse a child or to etc. 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 because they know it by nature. God gave us a part of His nature when we were made in His image and likeness, and you naturally know that sin is sin. You know that murder is wrong, whether anyone ever came and told you God said don't murder or not. So God says that He will be just when He judges, because anyone who lives and dies without Christ will to have some level received light from God, witness from God, and said consciously, no, I sin against that light, I'm not going to keep seeking the truth. 
Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So people will say, you give them a clear gospel presentation and say... God says receive Jesus or you'll be condemned. They say, well, what about the people living in Asia who never heard this before? To which I would usually say, well, whatever your opinion is on that, what about you? Because you have heard this right now. But if you have the faith to say God is just when He judges, we can keep playing into it and try to flesh it out. But God says the people living in Asia had a clear revelation from Him and that they should have been able to tell there was a Creator, and it's my responsibility to seek the Creator. And if they do not do that and seek and find the name of Jesus, they will ultimately be lost and be punished. I know that no one can be saved except it's through the name of Jesus Christ. No other name is given among heaven whereby we must be saved. And I know that it seems like people are born into times and situations where they don't have a lot of light from God. But I also have faith to believe that God... What God said is true. He is revealing Himself to them. And ultimately, choices have to be made whether to receive or reject the light that is given. Psalm 19 talks about creation itself showing the handiwork of God and that it's always giving its speech. And that any language that is spoken anywhere at any time in history, creation itself is a witness. There is a Creator and I need to seek Him and find the truth. It's gone out into all the earth to witness to all of the people. So God is lovingly, patiently drawing all men to Himself and is giving them light. I meant to go back and look up the name so I could pull the exact details of the story. I can't remember, but I recently heard Pastor Willette talking about a missionary who traveled to some remote island where they'd never heard the gospel before. And he gave them the gospel message and he said, there's a God. The Old Testament called Jehovah God. He created everything. It's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus died for your sins. And if you receive Jesus, you can be saved. And the man said, I knew that God existed. I was just waiting to find out what his name was. I looked up at the stars and I looked around at the creation of God and the way that it all was working. And one night when I was all alone and had climbed a tree and was looking up into the void, I looked up into the sky and said to the God I knew that was out there, Who are you? And He just sent you to tell me who He is. There's examples of that exact thing happening in the Bible. There was a man named Cornelius who was seeking God. He didn't know who God was yet. But God appeared to him in a vision. And he said, Your prayers and your alms are come up before a memorial unto God. I know you're seeking me. I know you want to know God. So call for this guy named Peter. He'll be stubborn about it, but I'll show him some visions too that make sure he knows he's supposed to come. And he'll tell you who I am and how to go to heaven. Let's conclude here this morning with number five. All men can be saved. Thus the message of the Bible... Whosoever will. We're searching out these doctrines of salvation and they're very confusing to us and everybody has a whole lot of different ideas. There's this obscure passage. It's in the Gospel of John in chapter number 3. I don't know if you've ever read it before. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, the story of the serpent in the wilderness was that the people had rebelled and rejected against God and God sent these serpents to bite them and the poisonous serpents bit them 
and that was it called fiery serpents? I don't know what it was, but it was pretty bad. Just like sin is bad. And the people were bitten. And then it was told Moses, make a brass serpent, right? And put it up on the pole and tell the people they have to look. And if they look upon that pole, then they'll be healed. And he said, that's what happened with Jesus. Why was the serpent on the cross? I know that it says when Jesus died, that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So I think the serpent on the pole was a picture of Christ becoming sin, paying for our sins. And this is what Jesus himself likens it to. So you could play out that story and imagine it in your mind that people are laying there, they're sick, they're dying, and they're going to die. But you heard the message, look, and you can live. So by faith you said, I'm going to consciously look. And you look down and you were healed. So you start running to your friends and your loved ones. If you look at the serpent, if you look at the pole, you can be healed. You can live. It worked for me. But then it was left up to the individual. Were they going to look by faith? Or were they going to refuse? And if you didn't look, you didn't live. But if you did look, you lived. And God didn't go take anybody's head and force them to turn and look at it. He said, you're perfectly capable of looking by faith and doing what I told you to do. But it's up to you whether you do it or not. And Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then the very, very obscure verse that teaches us about soteriology, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the world, the word here for... Uh, uh, let me read the next two. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And whatever pretext you want to try to read into that text, the plain sense and meaning is very clearly seen there. God paid for it. Whosoever will may come. If you believe, you can get saved. But if you don't believe, you're not. He's not describing a set of facts that some will be saved irresistibly against their will and everybody else is just left out of it because God decided He didn't want them to go to heaven even though they weren't capable of saying yes. Okay, so the word there for world. Let me see. If I have that there or not. The word therefore world is cosmos. It means by implication the world in a wide or narrow sense including its inhabitants literally or figuratively. For God so loved the world, the inhabitants of the world, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The same word therefore whosoever is the same Greek word used in Timothy when it says all. God would have all men to be saved. So whosoever believes in the Lord can be saved. That's the message of the gospel. It's very simple and it's very beautiful. And it's what we are supposed to be proclaiming. Now, there's a, I'll just say a few names, not in a, a way of, oh, who's he going to call out? But there's several people who talk about a lot of really good things and do a lot of good things in their ministry, but they're very wrong on this doctrine. One is uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin, who has a good size YouTube following, and he's preached about this verse and literally went into great detail that he said, when it says God so loved the world, it doesn't mean the whole world. It doesn't mean all the people in the world. It just means the sections of people that are spread around the world. He loved them. 
Hence he said, don't go up to someone on the street corner when evangelizing and say, Jesus loves you. You don't have a right to say that because you don't know if Jesus loves them or not. Okay? Romans 9, if you've ever heard it. From the beginning, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's talking about national Israel and nations and promises like that. But they take those verses and literally say, God hates those who are not the elect. Therefore, you cannot witness and tell someone Jesus loves you. You don't know if Jesus loves them. Then he went on to say that whosoever doesn't really mean whoever wants to. It just is sort of a statement of fact. Whoever does believe in him. But the writer conveniently decided to leave out whoever believes in him, parentheses. But remember, only the elect will believe in him against their will because no one else is capable of believing in him. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. So... He doesn't really love everybody. World doesn't actually mean world. And whosoever doesn't actually mean whosoever, according to that definition. But look, it's very plain from the text. He's not talking about loving the chunk of ground that we call the world or certain sections in it. He ties it to the fact that whosoever believeth in him, all who would believe in him, all who would look to Jesus, just like those who look to the serpent on the pole, will be granted everlasting life and can be saved Let's blow through, let me see here, about 10 verses and then have a prayer time. You all still with me here? We'll see who comes back next week. Some people might not come back, so we'll just try to get through as much as we can now. I'm just kidding. Romans 10, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the promise of God. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. Praise God. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you won't call upon his name unless he makes you against your will. That's not what it says. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Two verses to conclude this morning. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride. Say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will, again, the same Greek word that was used over and over again, that, that whosoever will may come. The word therefore will. Whoever is desirous to come, whoever would come, come drink of the water of life. It's free and you can have it. And I believe no man has a right to change God's word. And certain set of doctrines like Calvinism may have an intellectual appeal to those who would hear it and say, well, here's a deeper way of thinking about it. But God closes out the book of Revelation and the book of the whole story of Scripture by saying you have the Holy Spirit and you have the bride. Help me, who's the bride in the book of Revelation? It's the church. 
And what are they both saying to everyone who hears the message? Come on. If you're thirsty, come drink of the water and you can partake of it freely. Well, that's half the message. Who wants to just go ahead and stay till one o'clock and finish it out? No takers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Jeff will go get the chicken, okay? Let me recap the first five points. We'll get into the rest next week. Number one, God wants everyone to be saved. That's his desire. Number two, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Number three, no one can be saved unless God draws them. Number four, God draws all men. He calls all men to be saved. He provides light to everyone. Number five, all men can be saved. And the message of the gospel is whosoever will may come. Let's have a time of prayer. Let's have no music during this time, but let's just have a moment of prayer to reflect upon the message. And Jason, after we pray, would you come lead us in that song and then dismiss us in prayer? And while you're praying to dismiss, then Sheila can come to play the recessional. So I'll let you operate all that. Let's have a, a time of prayer and reflection on the message this morning.